Happy Monday, everybody, and welcome to episode seven of the Gen Z GOP podcast. I'm Mike Brodo, and joined as always by my co-hosts, Ryan Doucette and John Olds. Uh, we are back from a week break, much like baseball plays in series is. We're doing these in threes, and much to the dismay of my co-hosts, Ryan and John, the Red Sox have been really struggling lately on that baseball topic, just to, to poke some fun there. Uh, but we're but back. We're well rested. Boston sports fans are actually paying attention to the Celtics, who are in the Eastern Conference Finals. If you haven't forgotten, well, that's the weird thing. I am a Celtics fan and a Yankees fan, so it's a weird situation now in this friend group. So before we dive into our topic today, I think it's only right to give our unified condolences from Gen Z GOP to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This is a woman who broke many barriers in her life and dutifully and respectfully served her country. And that is something that deserves our utmost respect, regardless of our political differences. So today we're going to be talking about fiscal responsibility, the federal deficit, federal debt in general, and why that's problematic in the long term, especially for Gen Z. So I'll start off with a quote from the Daily Signal. In under a year, the Federal Reserve has more than doubled the amount of U.S. government debt it owns, printing money to buy debt, leaping from $2.1 trillion to $4.3 trillion, most of this coming during the COVID-19 crisis. This allows politicians to distribute large sums of money without immediately raising taxes or overloading credit markets, a process that simply cannot go on forever. Future generations will bear the brunt of the consequences. But I think it's important to start off that fiscal responsibility is a very important problem for Gen Z. It might not seem like an issue now to older generations who are notably concerned about Medicare, Social Security, and the like, and that's respectable. But if we continue to go down this path and this trajectory, it's going to have long-term consequences that our generation will bear. You're, you're absolutely right, Mike. And to kind of continue what you were saying, not only is this an important thing for Gen Z, but it's something that Gen Z voters, Gen Z people that may be unengaged are, they're not really aware of it. It's kind of a low salience issue for, for so many people. And rightfully so. It's a wonky topic. It's not something that uh, necessarily touches every moment of your life. Although we're going to try and explain to you why you should care about this. But um, it starts, as always, I feel like I'm the definitions guy here. But we should really think about what we're talking about and, and what we're like the definition of what we're talking about really is. So according to the Congressional Research Service, uh, fiscal policy is the means by which the government adjusts its budget balance through spending and revenue changes to influence broader economic conditions. So the really short version of that is it's how we spend money and how much we spend. To kind of piggyback off of that, spending can be both expansionary and contractionary. And those words kind of play right into their definitions. If you are engaging in expansionary fiscal policy, you are attempting to spend more money to stimulate economic growth. And with contractionary policy, you're trying to cut spending. So it's really simple. But today we're going to be talking less about how to use fiscal policy to respond to a recession, which is sort of a whole other issue of, you know, Keynesian economics. We are way more concerned about the day-to-day impact of fiscal policy, meaning how does our budget deficit affect 
the lives of so many Americans across the country? How does it affect the issues that they talk about at their kitchen table? How does it potentially affect the the life decisions of young people who will be eventually burdened with the debt that we have taken on? And the last distinction I want to make before we really get and drill down deep into this is there's a huge difference between deficits and debt. Now, functionally, their difference is how they're measured over time. A budget deficit is the amount of money, you know, the budget shortfall or surplus uh, that we incur year over year. Now, federal debt is more of a, it's more of a, an addition problem. You know, how much money, how, what was the deficit five years ago, four years ago, three years ago? We add those all up and that's the debt. Now, the debt can also be a surplus. It could be a negative number, meaning that the United States has more money on hand than it, than it spends. But I think it's really important to understand that a deficit is a yearly figure while the debt is a more kind of a conglomeration of our spending uh, over a longer period of time. So let's talk a little bit about the current situation financially. So the federal government has generally been running budget deficits for the past 50 years. And I don't mean generally during times of recessions, I mean almost every single year for the past 50 years, we're spending more as a government than we are taking in in revenue. Generally, past 50 years, this has been a continual problem. This is not something that is new, but the gravity of it is new because it's getting worse and worse and the trajectory is very disastrous. The current national debt stands around $26.7 trillion. That is an enormous amount of money. We'll get into why that's not extremely important on its face value, but the trajectory is going to get worse and that's going to create drastic consequences. The Brookings Institute notes that the U.S. government spends as much on interest payments of that debt every year as part of our annual spending as the combined budgets of the following departments, Commerce, Education, Energy, DHS, HUD, Interior, Justice, and State. Now that might not seem like a lot at first, but if we're paying that much on interest, then we're actually servicing these departments that are important, that's a problem. It's also noted that we spend more on interest than on Medicaid, and we can talk about cutting Medicaid spending and trying to make it more efficient, but let's just talk about the fact that you can't just borrow money without a cost. We have to pay interest on this. These are not interest-free things that we just defer to the future. So that cost is going to increase. So what matters more is the trajectory of that debt. It's not the actual level. It is a problem. But it's the point where it becomes unsustainable, and we'll get to more of that later. It's expected that the federal deficit for this year, 2020, is going to be $3.3 trillion. And without... That's without another COVID-19 stimulus package. We're not sure where that's going to go, but that could make it even worse. And this is the largest federal deficit since World War II. And now let's acknowledge here that we are in a pandemic. It's a recession. That's going to happen. $1.1 trillion of that is due to pre-existing structural deficits, though. So that has nothing to do with COVID-19. We already had to pay that no matter what, regardless of this thing. The rest of it is obviously due to this increased cost. But that's what we're trying to hone in on here. So we can finance this now. Because there are low interest rates, the Fed buys up debt in secondary markets and whatnot, so we can keep those interest rates low, and there's also low inflation. And when you have low inflation, you don't have to hike up interest rates. So we're okay now in a very short term for this, and it's important that we help people and help the economy by doing this. But this is a long-term problem, and it's a continual one. Michael Strain from AEI says that the economic damage deficits cause is more akin to slow rot in the foundation of a house than a tornado suddenly blowing it down. So we're not trying to scream out here like, oh my gosh, we have to solve this 
ASAP right now. Yes, we need to think about it right now, but it's not going to crumble the economy right now. What would crumble the economy is not injecting money into it to save it. And another thing, let's put this in an international perspective. According to the IMF, the U.S. is the only advanced economy in the world whose debt to GDP ratio is expected to continue to rise after 2021. So we're kind of an outlier here. This is ridiculous that we have to do this. We're the largest economy in the world. We know we have a lot of people, but we need to be better on this. So it's not inherently a problem, like I said, that we're spending a lot of money and running deficits during pandemics and recessions. And while we should be able to and should run deficits during unprecedented economic shocks, this is not sustainable year over year when we don't have these situations. For example, in 2019, which was a year of record low unemployment, booming economic growth, no recession, no shock that we know of, we ran a $984 billion deficit. That's just ridiculous that we're running those things during those times. And the Trump administration, Senate Republicans, seem to have given up on fiscal responsibility. And now tax cuts are generally good. But if they fail to pay for themselves, like they argue, you have to cut spending concurrently. And that just hasn't happened. Uh, there's a Waypo article from 2019 that says the country's worsening fiscal picture runs in sharp contrast to President Trump's campaign promise to eliminate the federal debt within eight years. The deficit is up nearly 50% in the Trump era. And since taking office, Trump has endorsed big spending increases and steered most Republicans to abandon the deficit obsession they held during the Obama administration. Yeah, Mike. So you make a really good point about 2019 being a year of uh, crazy low unemployment. You know, we had we had so many job openings in this country and we didn't have enough workers to fill them. And we had growth that was strong and robust and yet we still had a $984 billion deficit. And there are a number of reasons for that. And I'm sure that, that you and, and myself and Ryan will, will touch on these before, but we should acknowledge that that's kind of an abdication of our fiscal responsibility. And as Republicans, as people that understand that the debt isn't just a number that gets placed on a billboard at a libertarian think tank, it's something that actually affects the lives of human beings in America. And I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's just so disappointing to see that we had so many House Republicans get elected in the Tea Party wave that were staunch fiscal zealots. And now, you know, there's almost, they can't even put together a nuanced thought about how we're going to get this thing under control. So you make a really good point about 2019 being an unprecedented year in and of itself with no pandemic. So definitely something we should be paying attention to and, and give some more thought to. John, you make a great point. I think the issue here is that because of this year-over-year -year fiscal mismanagement, like we're talking about with 2019, where we didn't need to have deficits that high during times of growth, we are now forced to reconcile in a year like this with a recession, a pandemic, with not being able to spend as much as we need to. The debates on Capitol Hill between $3 trillion, $500 billion, whatnot, shouldn't have to be happening because of the mismanagement in the past. We should be able to provide stimulus for families that are suffering during these economic hardships. So having to make these calculations when families depend on this health is irresponsible in itself, and it's caused by these structural deficits that we've been running year over year so that we're not actually prepared to use deficits when they are necessary.
if we were more responsible, we probably wouldn't have the same gridlock that we're seeing over spending and families wouldn't be suffering. And now I'm not saying that we shouldn't debate these stimulus packages. Like we should talk about the efficacy of them. Should we give money to local government? Should they be direct payments? Should we giving money to corporations that are struggling? That's fine. We should definitely debate that. But having to debate the numbers purely because we are worried about the deficit is caused by the fact that we keep running deficits we don't need to. We shouldn't have to pit dire future complications against current challenges. That's what makes the government ineffective. The government should be able to come to the table and use fiscal policy to respond to crises like this. And the past consequences shouldn't be complicating that. So if we can actually year over year manage the economy and manage our fiscal policy more effectively, we wouldn't see what we're having now. And that's what's really unfortunate. Because the government should be able to come to the table and say, okay, we are going to spend money and help these families, help the economy stay afloat. But when you have these deficits during unprecedented economic growth years, we're going to not be able to do that. Mike, I think you're you're onto something there. The government needs to do a better job about watching our trajectory and watching our deficit. Because I do think when we talk about an issue like this, most Americans aren't actively watching what our deficit in a year may be. Like we of course have some Americans who will, but it's not an everyday dinner table conversation. And because of that, average Americans do not see the ramifications. They're not put right in front of their eyes. Uh, They're there, but they're not obvious. And because of that, you know, they've stopped caring about the issue And, you know, in recent polling this year, in June of this year, amid a pandemic where our deficit is higher than ever, only 40% of U.S. adults called the deficit a very big problem, which was down from 55% in the fall of 2018. If I was using any bit of my logic, I would say, you know, I would have thought that number had gone up between 2018 and, you know, June of 2020, but been the opposite. And, you know, over that same time period, the deficit grew from you know 779 billion to 2.8 trillion at the end of July. Granted, that's amid a pandemic, uh, and can't really be taken with uh, you know much more than a grain of salt. However, it's still incredibly dissettling to any American to look at that number. And it was noted in Michael Tanner's National Review article, "The Moral Dimension to Our National Debt," that every child born today inherits a portion of our debt. And we are continuing to live at our child's expense. And this this way forward isn't the right way. It's not the way for the long term. It's not focusing on the future. And ultimately, it's going to screw over Gen Z the most. I don't I don't know if if you guys got the same sort of vibe talking about the deficit than the feeling that you get when you talk about the climate, because I think at the at the core of the issue is an inability for people to actually see the effects of the deficit. Just like it's very easy for a conservative or for anybody for that matter to to look at the climate and be like, it hasn't really affected me. Why do I need to do something about this? So I think what we're attempting to do here at Gen Z GOP, this podcast isn't necessarily a policy prescription platform. Like we are not here to tell you the answers, but we're here to talk about why these issues matter and why these issues aren't so um, low interest. And and they we're going to dispel the myth that this is something that doesn't really affect you and doesn't really affect your day to day life. So just just my two cents, huge, huge allusion to climate policy when we talk about the deficit. 
Yeah, so let's talk about the negative ramifications for the economy in the long run. It's a Gen Z podcast, so we want to really home in on the negative ramifications for the economy as a result of these federal deficits and growing debt in the long term. This is a Gen Z podcast. We are very concerned about the long-term ramification. And like Ryan and John said, people don't seem to see the impacts, but they will. And the more that we push this problem off, the harder it's going to be to address these things and the more that we're going to have to scale back our spending. And that's when people are going to feel it. So if we don't start talking about this now, people are really going to see the impacts later. So we need to talk about these long-term impacts in the same way that we do of climate. And maybe people look at climate because that's putting the whole world at danger. It's something that kind of easier to wrap your head around, whereas this is very structural and econ heavy and it might be hard to understand, but it nonetheless is going to have a significant problem on our generation. So there are three main ramifications long-term for the economy that results from this trajectory that we're going down in terms of the deficits and the debt. The first is that persistent large budget deficits can result and do result in an increasing debt to GDP ratio. And that can lead to an unsustainable debt level. So the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, predicts that the federal debt held by the public will exceed GDP, our gross domestic product, everything that is transacted in the economy, it's a measure of the economy's size, when measured by fiscal year, by October 1st. That's when the new fiscal year starts. So the amount of debt that we have is now going to exceed the total size at per year of the American economy, which is the largest economy in the world. That is something that is terrifying. And obviously this is driven by the COVID-19 stimulus packages that accelerated this, but we are on this trajectory nonetheless. In perspective, by 2030, that cumulative federal debt is expected to reach 109% of GDP. And now you might say, oh, maybe we've been close to this for a while. No, in 2008, it was only 40% of GDP, 40%. Now that is not inherently a problem. Like we're going to run debts, but when it comes to a point that it's exceeding the size of the economy, there starts to become questions about the viability of this and sustainability of this type of debt. The long-term threat is the perceived risk of default. And I'll clarify here that US government debt and bonds from the treasury are regarded internationally as the safest investment. No one thinks the government's gonna default because the world economy is dependent on the US dollar. So like, I'm not trying to sound the alarm here that, oh my gosh, people think the US is gonna default, we can't service our debt anymore, no. But it is going to come to a point where it becomes less and less valuable and people are going to become a little bit more afraid of uh, buying this debt up so that this is not probably going to happen now. The international standing of the dollar makes it so that debt is sustainable, but we need to be cognizant of the long-term potential downfalls. And we also need to recognize that fiscal crises are often sudden, so we need to prepare for them. All of a sudden, certain countries... No one wants to buy their debt anymore. All of a sudden, their credit rating drops. Like I said, unlikely for the U.S., but we need to be recognized that this is a potential. But our credit rating that I talked about is regarded as very safe is actually already being downgraded. The interest on the debt could eventually increase or become harder to service as a result. And the larger the debt grows, the more sensitive it becomes to changes in interest rates. So when the reason that we are able to service this debt, like I said, it's such a safe investment, is because the interest rates are low on safe investments. There's not a lot of risk involved. But the larger the debt grows, those interest rates could tick up, and that becomes more expensive to service. So another CBO projection is that by 2030, federal government will spend $664 billion on interest costs alone. $664 billion per year just paying off interest. That is almost what the military budget is, but going just to interest. 
and this is with an average interest rate of 2.1%, which is very low. So let's say the average interest rate doubles to 4.2%. Now we're spending $1.2 trillion in interest spending. So like I said, if those interest rates tick up because our credibility rating goes down, we're going to have to spend more and more per year just doing this, and that reduces the spending in other areas and becomes extremely expensive. The second point besides the debt to GDP ratio, which can make it harder to service the debt, is that persistent fiscal stimulus, injecting money into the economy when it's not needed, for example, can limit long-term growth through crowding out private investment. So this happens because when you're injecting money into the economy, you increase interest rates. And then that disincentivizes private investment because private investment likes to have low interest rates. They don't want to have to take out loans with very high interest rates. So when we continually try to stimulate the economy with public money, which is taxpayer money, when it's not necessary, we lose all the private investment that to us essentially is free. That's private risk that's going on. And that's what actually should be driving economic growth, private investment. The public investment should really only be happening in contractionary periods. And the third point is that rising public debt will require an increasing portion of the budget, like I said earlier, to be paid toward debt interest. That's inherently a problem. The more we service now, like, great, yeah, we can spend more on this program, but we'll just push it off to later. Like I said earlier, it comes at a cost. So this reduces the potential spending in other areas, and that number continues to tick up. We're going to have to start making drastic cuts if we don't look at this now. So we can't just keep increasing the deficit and think that, oh, that's a problem for a future generation. Mike just gave one of his his classic uh, Mike monologues. I, I want to brand that, by the way. You know, he talked about fiscal stimulus. He talked about uh, the debt having to be financed through interest payments. He talked about the GDP ratio to debt. And those are all good. And I think that when we talk about the deficit all too often, we think of it as just a list of programs and we like kind of run through it like we would a pro and con list where we're like, okay, you know, we like this program. We don't like this program. It's kind of like a laundry list. You go to the grocery store, you say you want to spend a hundred bucks you know, you get the milk, the bread, the eggs, uh, you know, some poultry, and all of a sudden, the items at the bottom of your list go outside of your $100 budget. And you're like, Oh, I don't really want those anymore. So I guess what I'm trying to say in a really roundabout way is that the budget deficit is not just us going through a laundry list of, um, of spending programs and saying we like this one, and we don't like that one. It's, it's far more complicated than that. And I think that what we want to touch on is that not only is the deficit a function of what we decide to spend money on, whether it's defense, whether it's Medicare, whether it's um, completely discretionary programs, uh, whether it's a pandemic response, uh, it's more than that. It's how we live our lives that affects the deficit, you know. In, in a world where fewer people are sick, the cost of healthcare goes down. The federal government would have to spend less money on healthcare. Another another example of this would be, you know, if you live the most sustainable lifestyle that you can, you take that kind of personal initiative to live in a way, you know, drive a hybrid car, carpool, take public transportation, stop using plastic water bottles. Those very, you know, very small steps you can take if done at a critical mass, you could actually probably justify some cuts to the environmental protection budget. I guess my, my, what I'm trying to say is that 
it's more than just us looking at, you know, oh, we're going to buy five fewer tanks this year and we're going to, you know, increase the payroll tax to pay for Medicare for this. Like it's so much more complicated than that. And we need to acknowledge that everybody has a role to play in reducing the deficit. So what we're talking about here relates to spending. Now, there are two forms of spending, discretionary and mandatory the only things that we can actually cut right now is discretionary spending. That's what Congress approves each year. Congress just has to spend money on. There are two notable spending sources there, Medicare and Social Security. And now this is something we don't like to talk about in politics a lot because when you even mention it as a candidate that you want to reform it, a lot of older voters are going to be upset. Uh, but we need to address that here, and we'll talk about why. The largest sources of fiscal pressure on this country right now are an aging population and rising health expenses. And you can see how those two sources of pressure are directly related to those two programs. Michael Strain at AEI says the gap between tax revenue and projected spending for Social Security and Medicare, which itself is driven by an aging population and the rising cost of healthcare, is the cause of the US debt problem. He literally says this is the cause of the debt problem. Obviously there's a lot more involved there, but that is the major cause. So broadly speaking, we need to talk about transforming entitlement programs that promote individual opportunities instead of dependence. If you want to look more into this, we're not necessarily endorsing it, but the Heritage Foundation has something called the Blueprint for Balance. talks a lot about entitlement reform, which we're not going to get to here, that would help reduce the fiscal pressure and make them more effective. But I think what we're trying to get across here is that while it might not be politically feasible to mention this as a candidate, as Gen Z politically involved people, we have a responsibility to start having discussions and getting the ball rolling on how to reform Social Security and Medicare. Because like I said, the government is forced to spend money on these each year and the costs for them keep going up as the population ages and health costs increase. So we, we actually can't even cut the spending. So we need to talk about how we could fix that problem because that is going to hurt us in the long run. And these are complicated topics and we're not in the position to provide suggestions necessarily right now. But we do have the position to start this conversation now because if we don't do it, it's going to hurt us more and more in the future. And a lot of think tanks have suggestions on this if you like to check that out. But Heritage Foundation says this, it is nearly impossible to tackle America's debt without addressing entitlement programs like Medicare, Social Security, which consume $2 out of every $3 in spending. So everyone wants to talk about trimming all these little other things and fine, we can try to make different government departments spend money more efficiently. But we cannot even start talking about addressing the debt unless we look at the big monsters in the room, which are Medicare and Social Security. And now, like I said, this can be disadvantageous electorally. And I'm not saying that we should strip away entitlements and, and retirement benefits and healthcare from seniors who need it and who have paid into these systems. But this is an unsustainable path to go down. These programs are not going to be soluble for people like us. And the longer we wait to reform, the larger the consequences become. If we continue to keep spending the same money on it, eventually when we have to make those drastic cuts, they're going to be more severe and more sudden, and that's going to hurt people more than if we start to slowly reform them now. And these problems will only intensify as the population continues to age. The CBO projects that Social Security's retirement trust fund will become insolvent in 2031. That's in 11 years. And failure to reform will likely result in a 25% reduction in benefits for every retiree. So this is no longer a future generation's problem because there are retired people now. They're going to be alive in 11 years. And 25% is a pretty big number. If we fail to do anything, that number is going to continue and increase. Maybe it becomes 
100% eventually for people like Ryan, John, and myself, where the money that we're putting in Social Security, we don't get any of the money. When you pay into Social Security, when you pay into these entitlement programs, you have an expectation that you're going to get them out. So I think that we should t- like think about what that actually means. It doesn't mean like, oh, I'm going to get a payment someday. Like It means my entire the the entire amount of years that I work, the entire you know way I uh, spend my money, the entire sum of money that I believe that I have to retire is based on these programs. So it's not just like a number that people fat like like sort of abstractly think about. Oh yeah, I'll get my check you know uh, when I'm 65 or whatever. No, it's it's it is fully integrated into the calculation that a person makes when they decide to retire. So it's just like any sort of climate policy as it relates to businesses where the the expectations game is so important. Like if a business expects that this cost is going to be incurred, it's a lot easier for the business to to operate. Just as if you're an older person and you understand that Social Security is an expected program that I'm going to be able to rely on. It'll. It, it, I, I, what I'm trying to say is it, it, it's a huge factor. That expectations game is a huge factor. And we need to understand that if we were to reform these programs, we would have to understand that people expecting these benefits would lose them or hypothetically would lose them. And that's something that needs to be strongly considered by policymakers. Yeah, I think you touch on a great point there as it directly relates to the retirement benefit aspect of it. Because people have this expectation that they have money saved in retirement, much of which they might put in Social Security. They are forced to, but they at least have that expectation that that money is going to be there. But I think this is actually less of a problem than the next point, which is the fact that Social Security's disability insurance fund is going to run out in 2026. So it's a problem on the retirement side because you expect that you have money put away for retirement, you can actually kind of plan for that. And it's not like people that are retiring now are having all the money stripped from them. It is going to slowly happen, like I said, that 25% cut. But here's a bigger problem. The disability insurance fund, which Social Security also addresses, which has nothing to do with retirement, affects people in the here and now. Those, These are people that are not able to work out of circumstances beyond their control that rely on the federal government to help them get ahead, that give them that hand up. So if we are going to lose that fund by 2026 with current projections, the current trajectory, that's an even bigger problem because people can put other money away for other retirement programs and they can adjust as needed when they see that this problem is on the horizon. But when this disability insurance fund that people actually need because they have no other source of revenue for the most part, that's even bigger of an issue. Heritage Foundation says the disability insurance program is so dysfunctional that there's tons of room for improvement, though. And they said policymakers could cut the program's costs in half while providing uh, better protection against poverty, promoting recovery over dependence, and making the system more effective and responsive to the needs of individuals with disabilities. So the Heritage Foundation seems to believe that this program can easily be reformed, but for some reason, Congress just never wants to talk about these issues because people, even just thinking about touching it, people freak out, even if the consequences aren't positive. So I think that's an even bigger problem than the retirement side, because one of my beliefs in what the federal government should actually be doing in terms of economic help is for people that can't work because of circumstances beyond their control. So if the federal government can no longer do this, they lose one of their mandates to the American people. So we need to start talking about the disability insurance program that it's in not a six mandate. years 
is going to run out. It's it's not really a mandate, but I understand what you're trying to say there. Yeah, yeah, not necessarily a mandate necessarily, a responsibility though. Obviously, the government's mandate is protect the rights of the citizens, but I feel like as an economic responsibility for the government goes, we're not big socialists here with UBI, but I believe it's it's a responsible thing for government to do to help people that can't provide incomes for themselves. So this actually sticks out to me personally bigger uh, than even the retirement one that, that we were talking about earlier. And lastly, on Medicare Part A, which is hospital insurance, it's going to consume its remaining funds by 2024. So for some reason, this is not like a major headline in the news. This is four years from now, and Medicare, which millions of Americans, seniors rely on to literally go to the hospital and get health care, especially in a pandemic like this, is going to run out in four years, and no one's really talking about it outside policy circles in D.C. is just beyond belief for me. I, I think it's people are going to realize that by the time it runs out, be like, oh, crap. Like, what do I do now? But the fact that we're not even talking about this is just mind-boggling to me because this is not even just a future generation problem. Like, this is going to affect people here now. So if we need to fix this problem, not because, oh, like we talked about earlier, the credit rating, we're not going to be able to borrow, borrow more money in the future and service future programs. We can't even service the programs we have now and the people that need help now. So this is a future problem combined with a present problem. And that's something that really needs to be touched on. And Mike, to your point, I think a lot of times when people talk about the budget and how we spend, they they look at the military budget and say, hey, let's cut the military budget. But it's actually a lot more complex than that. They look at discretionary funding rather than non-discretionary funding, as Mike was talking about. Okay, like, like Ryan said, everyone talks about cutting military spending as that is the end-all be-all for this. I personally think that we could reduce the defense spending that we're doing and actually strengthen the military. Like Ryan said, this whole blank check theory, if the military believes that they can spend as much money as they want, Congress will always give them what they ask for. There's no incentive to be more efficient in that spending. But my argument for cutting military spending is actually rooted in trying to make the military stronger, more efficient. It's not to fix this problem of the deficit that we're talking about. That's really the mandatory aspect that we need to hone in on. And I think that we have a cultural problem in our government surrounding spending. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. It's a real issue in our government today where we kind of believe that we can spend without control and just keep spending um, just because it's maybe maybe politically convenient. And as, as we look towards like the COVID-19 pandemic, we've especially seen our spending go out of control for better or for worse. I mean, obviously you can't really control everything during a global pandemic that comes once and every hundred years, but I think you can definitely still push forward fiscal, fiscally responsible and economically sound budgets, but, you know, and policies, but that's not really what's going on right now. Our politicians are more interested um, in which special projects and earmarks that they can fund and how they're going over how much they're going to give back to like unemployed Americans in the sense of bolstering our economy and getting jobs back open. It seems like some of these politicians are not focused on getting these people back to work or reducing the deficit. Um, and that's a huge problem because we've almost seen some of these, as I said, politicians, like how much can we give and not how much we can actually do to get them back into work, which will provide them with a lot more when you really look at it. And so this kind of relates back to this culture war in the government and not the culture war that like, you know, some conservatives try to talk about with like social values, but more on an economic front. And we've seen both parties kind of adapt to it um, in the sense of a lot of these populist Republicans um, 
try to use government like likewise the Democrats to kind of push forward their motives. And I, I understand it to an extent um, because the some people perceive it as like the other side has advocated for this, you know, type of approach to politics. But ultimately, it's screwing our country over and it's not helping us control this deficit or push for limited government. If anything, we've lost any value as a party we have in limited government. So we're kind of presented with this question as a party and as a nation about what we can actually do to fix this. And, you know, first and foremost, it's it's simple and I'm just going to say it. It's not a nuanced take, but we can actually be fiscally responsible and not just when it's politically convenient. We can't have candidates saying, oh, I'm going to go to Washington and, you know, fight for, you know, fiscal responsibility. And then they just end up in Washington and then continue to add to these omnibus budgets. That's not how it's going to work. You know, we're going to continue spiraling out of control if that's the case. And, you know, when these people come to Washington pledging to fight for fiscal responsibility, we need them to actually make hard decisions where they're going to actually cut spending. And ultimately, you know, the thing that we fear most as conservatives is higher taxes. And unfortunately, if we don't cut our spending, we're almost going to be left to no other option than to raise taxes. And that's like the last thing I want to do. That's literally the last thing I want to do because that hurts small businesses. That hurts everyday Americans. It's the last possible resort. So we need to cut spending before then. As Ryan said, I think it would be an unfair discussion to not even mention the revenue side of it, the tax side of it. Um, And I think as Republicans, we obviously want to keep taxes on the middle class low because the whole point of fiscal policy is to drive the economy and help people make more money and produce more things and be able to consume more and essential goods. So that is the last thing that we want to do in that sense. But I think that we also need to uh, recognize that the tax reform that we've been having lately is generally good, but we shouldn't be doing these expansionary cuts during times of economic growth, right? That's going to have negative impacts on the deficit. And I'm not pushing necessarily against in the totality of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, but I think there were aspects of it that did harm our fiscal situation. For example, uh, the timing of it, like I said, is not helping our deficit situation. It almost doubled the deficit. That's just totally not true. Uh, It radically increased the deficit in a very short amount of time. And now we can talk about reforming our tax code. That's not really the purview of this episode. We could reform that. Maybe we should be more cognizant of people in the middle class or people that are wealthy but not uber wealthy and how they are being impacted by these tax policies. But the end all be all is not just increase taxes across the board, increase tax on the wealthy, increase tax on corporations, because that has negative impact on the economy. We can reform the taxes, maybe tax uber wealthy a little bit more. That is my personal take in terms of their personal wealth. But we can't just slap a, a one size fits all approach on this. And I think that's an important thing to recognize here is that the main driver of this structural deficit for the past 50 years has been irresponsible spending. It has not been the year over year or once a decade tax cuts. They may hurt us in the short term. Tax cuts are generally a good thing if they're done right. I'm not saying I agreed with everything they did. I think this not having a stock buyback provision in the latest bill was a negative consequence, but I think it's unfair to approach this as saying that it's a revenue problem and it's absolutely a spending problem. Mike, you're you're absolutely on point there. We need to be we need to talk about the revenue side. We need to talk about taxes. This isn't an issue Again, just like the deficit, taxes are so complex. It's an area that I've studied that I would love to 
uh, lead an episode on. I know you have your personal opinions. I have mine. Um, in fact, I, I can almost assure you that we will do a, a full podcast episode on tax policy and the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and how that's affected uh, our deficit and our economic growth and different uh, you know, external factors. But I guess what I'll say is taxes are not a simple issue. And I think we need to respect the fact that taxes in and of themselves are also an extremely nuanced issue uh, that have second and third order effects. So, you know, you mentioned Jeff Bezos, you know, we should tax him more. Like how we do that is super complex. It's not a matter of just saying, oh, yeah, we're going to make him pay 50% of his income to the government. Jeff Bezos can evade taxes like nobody's business. So let's just keep that in mind when we're talking about taxes. Yep. So just some final thoughts here. I thought I would leave us with a quote again from Michael Strain at AEI. He says, debt and deficits matter, but they are not all that matters. This year's enormous deficit was justified. The economic emergency facing the U.S. requires additional deficit finance spending as well. But borrowing isn't without cost. To make sure the U.S. can meet future challenges when deficit spending is called for, putting the national debt on a downward trajectory should be a top priority for the next Congress. So I think the takeaway here is that the trajectory that we're going down, the fiscal irresponsibility that we see out of this government is going to hurt us in the future, whether we like it or not, whether we want to reconcile it or not. And the more that we push off this problem, the more severe the consequences are going to be on the American people. So I'd like to thank you all for taking time to listen to this episode today. Just a reminder to like and share this podcast with your friends, family, and really anyone you think that would be interested. We love growing this movement. We really put a lot of work and passion into this. Uh, check our social media, our Twitters and Instagrams for the pod, our Gen Z GOP pod, and for the organization at large, Gen Z GOP org. And also check us out on Facebook as well. And our website where you can sign up to join the movement and try to become a member of this wonderful organization that we have here is genzgop.org. Thank you, everybody. Check back next Monday for the next episode and have a great week.